Welcome to the Big Bang Theory. Rob, welcome to the Big Bang Theory. Thank you very much, Bob. Wonderful to have you here. Uh, I like to start in asking people in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us who you are, what do you do, and why are you qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Um, my name is Rob McCulloch. Um, I'm one of the winemakers at um, one of Hawke's Bay's largest contract-only wineries. Um, I'm, I'm the winemaker for the, the bulk wine side of the business, and I also run that, that commercial operation. So I contract fruit, um, I buy fruit to make bulk wine, um, I make the wine uh, for, for the bulk wine side of the business. I handle the logistics for that business. I look after the compliance for all the wine I make. Um, I also look after the traceability and uh, the for the winery and for BRC audit. Um, I look after the harvest compliance for BRC audits, and then I also look after the whole sort of sales and company administration for that that bulk winemaking side of the business. So I have, I have quite a, a big role um, across many different fields, but primarily I'm a winemaker, um, making roughly about, mm, about 750,000 litres of wine per year. Um, so probably from an MW standpoint, I'm probably a paper two and paper three specialist. Perfect. We like, we like those. Uh, so, well, well, in spite of that, we might start with um, uh, somewhere in P1. I think it makes sense to start in the vineyard. Uh, how are you, you know, what training systems and density do you plant at uh, for, you know, particularly for the bulk wine side of things? Um, and what are the advantages, disadvantages of them? Well, I, I think that, I mean, the first thing with, with New Zealand is that it's, um, it's a country which is still very much, in a sense, a frontier country. Um, you know, it's a very young country. And things to some extent for New Zealand have had to revolve around um, what's practical. And certainly, you know, the way that New Zealand vineyards started up, and, and particularly for, for vineyards, which we, we still harvest now and, and see now, the training systems and vine densities were um, largely put in place because of what was machinery that existed at the time. So standard tractor widths. Um, delineated what standard vine densities um, came out at. So you sort of find that for, for Sauvignon Blanc and, and for Merlot vineyards, which are, which are still the two biggest varieties in, in Hawke's Bay, um, you know, the, the standard type of um, vine densities we, we sort of see here is, is they're planted at 2.4 metre um, wide rows, give or take, and then generally about 1.5 metres between vines. So it works out around about um, just under 3,000 plants um, a hectare. Uh, it's about, it's about 2,700 plants a hectare. Um, Pinot Noir and Syrahs tend, tend to be planted a little bit narrower, and you do find some, um, some close-planted vineyards now. Um, you know, a guy who's, who's doing quite a lot of work with close-planted vineyards is Steve Smith, MW, at uh, Smith & Sheth. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, I mean, vineyards were always um, planted around 
what's practical. Because New Zealand's a, a country with, with a very low population, um, very low amounts of labour available here. Um, so trying to make things work uh, in a system where you can manage it with few people is, is always beneficial here. And, um, yeah, and standard machinery um, sizes at the time sort of gave what we've ended up with. Um, so, I mean, that also means that, you know, most, most vineyards here are um, machine harvested. You know, we, we do get a lot of hand harvest, but it, 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 when I say a lot, at, at our winery, we probably have more hand harvest lots of fruit coming into the wineries, but this is in sort of one to two ton lots, whereas we get less machine harvest fruit um, uh, parcels turning up at the winery, but these are in 10 to, 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 to 20 to, to 30 ton lots. So the actual, the actual majority of, of, um, of New Zealand uh, grapes are machine harvested. That's particularly so for, for Sauvignon Blanc. Do you notice a quality difference between them? Or? No, I mean, you know, it's pretty well established now and that, that certainly for Sauvignon Blanc um, in, in, New, in a New Zealand context, machine harvest has significant qualitative advantages. Um, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes about, you know, machine harvest, machine harvest bad, hand harvest good. Um, we see some, some, I mean, it's so vineyard dependent. It's so vineyard management dependent. You can get terrible fruit that just happens to be hand harvest and you can get excellent fruit that tends to be, or, or that is machine harvested. So it, it really does depend on, on the season, the vineyard, um, many other factors. And, and, and certainly for Sauvignon Blanc, I mean, the one thing that that's where New Zealand has, has, done a ton of research on this and it's all available through the Brigato Institute or the or New Zealand wine growers. Um, machine harvest is effectively um, giving you a degree of skin contact to that fruit before it arrives in the winery. And so what that does is it enhances your concentration or, or your potential concentration of thiols. And thiols are for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, the key varietal characteristic. So machine harvest is a is a has become the standard method of making uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc because of that varietal characteristic that, that's enhanced by machine harvest. Um, so yeah, so so machine machine harvest is, you know, it, it, it's we we have to do it here because there's really not the labour to do a lot of um, hand harvest that's particularly so over this last year with covid um where where labor's been been very uh difficult to come by and i think you know you, you asked about about training systems it that also comes back to, to the the standard training system here is is vsp cane pruned vsp um and that's a very good system for by and large for um, machine harvest, for, for Sauvignon Blanc, for varieties like Merlot, um, even for Pinot Noir and, 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 uh, and Chardonnay. Um, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to harvest. It's, it's relatively easy to, to manage. Um, it's also more fruitful. Uh, that, that's that's a, the, one of the key reasons why, why um, K 
cane pruning VSP is, is popular here. We tend to find that, that spur prune vineyards, even though they're still trained to VSP, um, spur pruning has, has died out to a large extent. Well, I wouldn't say died out, but, it, but it's less popular because it's less fruitful. Um, so you're looking at, at, uh, at lower yields, probably, if, if you go with, with uh, spur pruning. What kinds of yields do you work on usually out there? Can you give a, an average or does it not really work like that? So um, Sauvignon, I mean, it, it does depend on varietal and, and it de- does depend on, on where you are. Um, Hawke's Bay, we generally get a, a slightly lower yield to a lot of Marlborough. And then at, at sometimes, you know, the, the upper end of the Wairo Valley or parts of the Arbitrary Valley, uh, Valley gets probably the same or even slightly lower yield than we would get here. You know, again, it sort of depends on where you are in relation to mountains, coast, um, your soil types, um, those type of factors. But generally speaking, for, for Sauvignon Blanc in Hawke's Bay, uh, from, from vineyards which we contract, we're looking at roughly about 15 tonnes to a hectare. Um, uh, Merlot would, would, for rosé, would be about that, um, 12, 12 to 15 tonnes a, a hectare. Pinot Noir and Syrah... Well, it, I mean, those, those are two low-yielding varietals in terms of their growth patterns in, in New Zealand conditions. I mean, that, that's a very, very big generalisation, but you don't get the same yield per hectare with Syrah, generally speaking, as, as you do with, with something like Sauvignon Blanc. So, you know, if you, if you, if you topped out at about 8 to 10 tonnes a hectare for those two varieties, you'd, you'd be doing pretty well here. Um, so, yeah, so the best way to think of yields is you've obviously got to turn that into wine. For Sauvignon Blanc, at the press, we're looking at probably getting round about 775 to 800 litres per tonne, okay? So that's a, a tonne is 1,000 kilos of fruit, and we're looking at getting, give or take, 775 litres of juice from, from that tonne. What are the... Is it main pests and diseases that you face? Uh, pests and diseases. Well, I mean, New Zealand is surrounded by a great big ocean, so it's it's uh, uh, humidity is a is a is a chief problem here. I mean, that's not that's not the same problem for regions like Central Otago, where it's it's really the the driest and most arid part of New Zealand. Um, but Hawke's Bay and Gisborne and, and Martinborough, North Island, um, which is which all areas I, I deal with, uh, they they suffer from uh, mildews. Um, so early season is is downy mildew if it's a particularly damp start of the season. Powdery mildew in um, in, in, in midsummer. Um, and then late season is, is, is botrytis. I mean, th- those powdery mildew and botrytis really are, are, the, are the two the two main issues here. Um, they're very damaging, and um, we we suffer from them quite a bit. I mean, they're both are manageable, um, and so you know it, it's a case of of being very very vigilant on on on, uh, on both diseases. 
it doesn't mean that, that the fruit is necessarily affected when it comes into the winery, because obviously we do our best to, to, to manage that to make sure it doesn't exist by the time it gets into the winery. But you can find, particularly in Hawke's Bay, that we get these autumn um, tropical storms which, which come down from the Pacific Islands, will hit you know, the east coast of New Zealand and then just, just dump a load of rain. And then you can have botrytis spread really fast through, through the vineyards. And you're looking at, at, at some, some pretty compressed and, and um, fast harvests because of the, the botrytis threat. Um, so that, I mean, those are those are the, the two the two main ones. I mean, I think other things which we face year round, um, like other countries, we we have trunk disease here, um, which is really Euterpe and, and Botrysphaeria. Uh, so you know, there, there's been quite a lot of um, just recently this year, there's been quite a lot of attention shown to, to old vines. And, and New Zealand doesn't have a huge amount of really old vines. I think part of the reason for that is because of um, the fact that trunk disease ha- ha- hasn't in the past um, been noticed fast enough. And, and so consequently, um, you know, vineyards probably have about a 20 to 25 year lifespan and, and, and then start to fall over because of... Um, uh, because of trunk disease, um, so you know we, we tend to find you know some 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 of the sort of lesser quality vineyards which we've contracted, they're really on their last legs by by about twenty five thirty years uh, because there there are too many plants which are, which are infected with with Utipa. and uh, the quality is just just the well the yield is getting less because of that, and quality suffering as a result too. Um, is there much you can do about that? Well, the, I mean, the main thing has been, I mean, the reason why, why trunk disease has spread, and I'm talking across the world here as, as well as New Zealand, is that, is that to some extent they, they weren't maybe as understood as, as they are now. Um, and they do take a long time to develop. So you don't start to see the effects of, of, um, of trunk disease till eight, nine, ten years into a, into a vine's lifespan. And where where they and where the infection started off very often has been through uh, through hygiene and uh, pruning. Um, so it's very easy to spread um, uh, fungal trunk disease fungal infection from vine to vine through through poor poor pruning hygiene um, or pruning during the rain, for example, where you get, you have spores distributed during the rain um, and. Just clean, cleaning up that act um, means that the, the, the incidence of, of trunk disease is going to get a lot less. Um, so I think the industry's got, you know, really got on top of it. But um, the, the, the thing is, is, that, is that for a lot of vineyards in the ground right now, um, you, can, you can walk through and you, and you can see vineyards where they've, they've got significant utipa um, in, in infections. Um, that, that's the same in in um, in other parts of the world too. I mean, South Australia is is somewhere where I've noticed a fair bit of utipa um, and, and been talked about as, as as a threat there too. Uh, so, so trunk disease is, is a thing. We, we also have have you know certainly have our issues with um, with leaf roll virus here. You know, particularly leaf roll, leaf roll three, which is the main virus um, or, or the main leaf roll associated virus. Um, mealybugs being part part of that too. Uh, there's a threat to New Zealand th- through in- possible 
invasive um, insects um, because obviously we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a very protected and secluded country here. So we don't have some of the, some of the, the, the insects um, which other countries suffer from like glassy wing sharpshooter in California, for example, or, or uh, BMSB, brown marmorated stink bug. Um, but they, they could arrive here um, and they could be, uh, could be a, re- a real problem. Um, so, yeah, so that, I mean, that, those, those are our main problems. Um, and um, that, that's what we're looking, at, looking out for through, through the season, you know, but I would say 90% of, our, of, of, of the work we do is related to powdery mildew and botrytis. Do you use any biological controls out there? Um, so I think, was it New Zealand was one of the first places to do things like trichoderma, I think. I mean, how effective are they? Or, or are they just, do they do not work as well as, as chemical plant sprays? Yeah, um, uh, very. Um, uh, the... Yeah, they, they, they are used, um, and, and increasingly so. Um, uh, with anything, it, it, it's, it's that there's, you know, I think, I think what we have here that I think is, has been very good has been there's uh, very good education and resources through New Zealand wine growers for um, grape growers to study those uh, those products and take part in trials and um, and see their effects and see the research that, that the um, institutes like the Brigato Institute do um, so there's been a pretty good good pickup of, of, of those things there's certainly there's only effective products um, you know and, and certainly the the move in New Zealand is towards much more organics um, I mean I think now the 10 percent of New Zealand is is planted uh, organically, and, and that, there's, there, there will certainly be much more um, planted in, in the future, or, or converted in the future. Um, it's still, it's still, I guess, sometimes a challenge to move growers over from from conventional to to, to organic. Um, you know that there is potentially, not always, but potentially a loss of yield and. Um, Yield is what is what drives income for growers. Um, so threats to to yield can can sometimes you know uh, make people make people think twice. But uh, but we you know, we we contract a number of organic vineyards where where yields aren't necessarily much different to um, to conventional. Um, so I think it, I think it's it, you know with with organic vineyards. I mean the. It's just that you know, careful, careful vineyard management, um, airflow, and good vineyard hygiene, and careful canopy management, um, careful pruning hygiene. Uh, th- those things make make so much difference that uh, you know, I don't, I don't think you need to to, to fear um, organics necessarily. There's certainly a better, you know, we certainly pay growers much more for organic fruit where where we can find it. So that there is there is that benefit as well. What are the main considerations when you're purchasing fruit for a commercial winery? Well, I, I think the main ones for me are that there's practical considerations. So what I mean by that is um, we, look at, we look at the vineyards in terms of where are they, how easy are they to get to, 
is it easy for, for harvesters to get there? Is it easy for, for harvest trucks, for, for the transport of fruit? Is it easy for them to get there? Um, uh, is the, and of course, is, is the fruit quality going to be there? I mean, if we, you know, if you, you can walk through vineyards and if they, you can spot some significant problems pretty fast if, if they have them. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just get a, get a sense that you might want to leave, you might want to leave this vineyard alone. It might be, it might not be worth your while taking it on. Um, so for example, you know, if you've got a, a small vineyard that's a long distance away from the winery with a, with a difficult access road, um, and it's not looking like it's going to produce a low, uh, a high yield, um, Possibly it's got a little bit of trunk disease. Possibly it's got a little bit of virus. Uh, maybe it's it's got a lot of trees bordering the vineyard where you just know that you're probably going to get bird peck at, 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 at the um, at the ripe, you know, as, as the fruit starts to get ripe. All those factors, you start to think, well, for the sake of that 10 tons of fruit, it's going to cost me quite a lot to harvest that. And... Um, be better off just holding out and, and trying to find something close to home that's that's a little bit easier and a little bit bigger um and um you know potentially less costly um but there's also your commercial considerations as well i mean you 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 i mean we we are we are contracted to find fruit for uh bulk wine contracts so we need to meet volume commitments um We've got our yield requirements because of that. We've got our cost requirements because of that, um, and uh, and quality requirements as well. I mean, we can't just you know buy anything. We 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 do need to buy good fruit, um, and we've we've certainly rejected you know a, a, a number of parcels in the in the past, uh, generally on on a seasonal basis. You know, we had we had one vineyard of Pinot Noir where. Um, Effectively, it just, it just had a, a wasp outbreak, and um, right at right at the uh, a time of year when, when the fruit was getting towards um, full ripeness, and the wasps just attacked the fruit, and effectively spread bacteria through the uh, through 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 the, the vineyard through the, the the action of them uh, eating or starting to, to damage the skins. So. You just had a, a an immediate outbreak of um, of sour rot, and uh, we couldn't harvest it. There was no no point in harvesting that fruit. So I, I guess those are the, the the main considerations. You know, it's it's uh, it always does come back to fruit quality, but I guess we have those um, those uh, those other factors of cost and uh, cost and, and, and actual pra- practicality too. So can you take me through your, well, now you've got the fruit, can you take me through the winemaking process? So like, uh, when to start with, how do you manage the juice, the clarity, turbidity, um, and, you know, let's, well, let's start there and we'll go through. Uh, well, fruit, fruit arrives at the winery, um, and so probably the best thing to do is talk, talk just about Sauvignon Blanc, because Sauvignon Blanc is still the majority of what, of what we make at our winery and, and what New Zealand makes. Um, and it, it's a relatively nice easy process. Um, it arri- the fruit arrives at the winery. Uh, it goes directly into the press. Um, and we, for the most part, we, we float our, our juice. So 
we don't chill the the, the must going into the press. Um, we um, do add some pectolytic enzyme. Um, we do add some um, sulfur dioxide to effectively increase our, um, the the efficiency of the press um, from the pectolytic enzyme, and to effectively give a good starting point for the yeast which we are going to add. We don't want we don't want an outside influence of other yeast. We want that yeast to work. So that's why the sulfur dioxide is is. Um, is added for the most part. Plus, it also knocks out any any or will will affect any botrytis infection or um, or other vineyard microbiology. Um, and then we then we have the juice in tank, and then we float. So flotation is um, effectively bubbling nitrogen through the juice to float up the solids to to the top. And then you draw off the clear juice from the bottom of the tank, and you're left with um, a layer of, of, uh, of heavy lees, of gross lees. Um, so you add, to, to actually make, make the float work, you add a couple of, um, of, of agents to, to make that work. So we add a vegetable protein, which binds up a lot of the, the, the proteins in the juice, and then we add, we add some bentonite, which uh, specialized flotation bentonite, which then binds to that protein. The nitrogen floats that whole mixture up to the top, separates the, the solids, which will contain things like um, any, any of the kind of the, 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 the vineyard dirt and um, rot and uh, botrytis solids. It'll take that up away from the juice and you're left with, um, with, with, with clean juice that you, you draw off. And the, the big advantage of flotation is that you, it's a fast process and you, you're not required to chill the juice. So you've got clear juice six hours after you receive it at the winery that's ready to ferment. And that, that's, a, that's a major um, benefit for um, uh, bulk winemaking because speed is important at this level of winemaking uh you know you don't you don't want to have juice sitting there days on end um tying up tank space um and ferments going on too long so we then we then um we then ferment the wine um for Sauvignon Blanc you're probably looking at 10 days to, to, to two weeks depending on on on, on um, how well that, that ferment goes uh, and then you um, really you, you rack off those fermentation leaves um, pretty soon because you want to, to keep varietal character. You, you don't want a lees influenced wine necessarily. Um, and then you will protein stabilize the wine, cold stabilize the wine, um, put it through final filtration, and um, and then then it's shipped. Um, so you, I mean, from receiving the fruit in say late March, we will be dispatching bulk Sauvignon Blanc in, in May. Wow. So it's a pretty fast process. Do you try to keep all your wines vegan or does it depend on the client? Yes. Yeah, it, it does depend on the client, but, um, but this year I've, I've made hundred percent vegan wine. 
um, yeah, we it's it's and it's a it's a it's a it's relatively simple to do. Um, I guess the it puts a little bit of extra pressure on you at fermentation, particularly particularly for reds and rosés and and whites as well to some extent. In that you you want them to come out of fermentation in a pretty great state. Uh, you don't have the option anymore of a lot of fining agents after fermentation to play around with. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of uh, vegan fining agents that, that you can use. Um, it, it, they're not always as effective. I mean, the thing with fining agents is that they, they all work in different ways and they all, and it becomes very individual to the wine you're treating too. So, you may have had in a previous year a great effect with fining agent X on Pinot Noir Y, but that that, that might not be the case for, for the following year. Um, so the best, the best, your best control is really to make sure that you actually have your whole profile of, of, of the wine in a good state at the end of fermentation, and then then you just don't really have to adjust anything, and and that's a that's a really good place to be. Um, but yeah, we 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 we've made everything vegan this year for uh, for, for everything that I do. Everything has been has been has been vegan. Um, so yeah, I mean we we probably have a little bit. We probably have more issues in a way trying to get things cold stable on on time um, because that that can, that can take that can take quite a lot of time, and uh, you don't always have it anymore. So. Um, do you add any adjuvants or anything, or like like CMC or Manistab or anything like that, or would they be too costly for the wines you're working with? No, um, we 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 have used things like that. The pro the problem you have with those is that they're not really okay. So what they're doing is they're masking cold stability. They're not actually ensuring cold stability. Yes, I mean what they're doing is that they're surrounding unstable tartrate ions in a layer of um, of cellulose or, or, or gum arabic they're not in fact um neutralizing or that they're, they're neutralizing those um those unstable tartrate tartrate ions but they're not eliminating them okay so they whilst they are effective it's still better to to, to look at at um at either traditional cold stability if you can afford it through time and, and power or other methods like stars dialysis, which is something that, that, that we that we use, which is is um, I think a very a very good system in terms of its speed. Um, it's it can change the pH of the wine and shift the wine the wine pH lower, which isn't always what you want, although that has benefits too. So yeah, th there's lots of swings and roundabouts. Um, but things like things like CMC and and um, uh, cellulose and, and 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 those things and uh, potassium polyaspartate we we have used um, and and do use but but not often I've got to say not often. You wanted to talk about about yeast as well, didn't you? I do. I yeah. I, I really do. So, and it's, <laughs> so Sauvignon's quite respective to different types of um, of yeast. So do you have a favourite or? Do you, or do you even like discuss it with the client? How do you uh, choose which yeast to use, and which ones do you do you like? 
Well, I, I guess um, we, to, to, to a large extent, I mean, with Sauvignon, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is very much the, the dominant it's the dominant region and dominant wine style that that um, that New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc um, makes. So even in Hawke's Bay, quite often wines we're making are trying to replicate Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc or even be used as a as a as a blending agent uh, as a blending component within Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. You know, we can blend up to 15% of, of wine from outside of region into a variety of wine. So Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc could potentially include 15% of wine not from Marlborough. Um, and Hawke's Bay Sauvignon Blanc, you know, certainly gives a bit of mid-palate weight at, 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 at times. So, um, you know, so, so ultimately, we, we, we're generally tasked to make wine that, that tastes not dissimilar to, to, to Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc if we can. And do we... And, and all of those yeasts that, that we use are, are really aimed at maximizing file expression um, because that's the dominant character of, of, of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. So uh, there's a ton of different yeasts on the market that, that, that you can use. Um, and for sure, you know, there, there's also a bit of wild fermentation that, that creeps in every now and then. But, but ultimately, we, we, we're a we're a, a, a very simple winery in, in our use in that we use pretty much one yeast for, for Sauvignon Blanc, which is Lafour Zymoflor X5. And it's, it's, it's a great Sauvignon yeast. Um, it's got great thiol expressions. It's uh, a, a clean fermenter. Um, it's got good fermentation kinetics, uh, uh, you know, a, a moderate to low VA production, um, it, it generally just makes very, very nice Sauvignon Blanc, you know, and and, and it, it sort of enhances that that varietal character, um, which is which is really, really sometimes actually a benefit for, for Hawke's Bay Sauvignon because Hawke's Bay is is that little bit warmer than Marlborough. We get a little bit more sort of tropical aspects to Sauvignon here, um, having a you know having something that 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 gives a bit of zip and, and, and vibrancy to our Sauvignon is, is generally a good thing. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's what we do with Sauvignon. And, um, we, and the, the benefit of course, is by buying one yeast, we, we get it at a, at a much better rate. Um, we are able to propagate it. So we, we then end up using far less of it too. I mean, just just on the the Sauvignon Blanc I made this year, I think I saved approximately five to six thousand um, dollars than if I if I had just inoculated every single tank uh, with the correct rate of dry yeast according to the the manufacturer's um, specifications. So if you think of you know putting that across the whole winery, I mean we're saving like several several probably. A, Ten thousand plus dollars a year, um, which is a pretty significant amount, just on one yeast. So, uh, yeah, so that's what we use. And then we things like Merlot Rosé. Um, we use. We've had a lot of lot of fun with a, a yeast called uh, Lafour Zymoflor X16. Um, that's got got nice kind of ester driven aromas. Uh, another strong fermenter, uh, which is really good. 
Um, and then and then reds, reds and Chardonnays, you know, that that comes down to to some extent, sort of winemaker and client preference. Um, there's a, there's a lot of different different things we've used for that. Um, I I've, I really like um, Le Moth Abiette Excellence SP for uh, for Merlot and Syrah. That that's that's a really nice yeast. It sort of gives a nice rich, spicy round character. Um, works very well for uh, for malolactic co-inoculation as well. Uh, and then I guess the um, the last because I actually make a fair bit of sparkling base for um, for Charmat. Um, is if it's not going through malolactic, then um, Lalamon DV10 is is just kind of a classic neutral champagne yeast. Um, you know, you don't want to use a, any yeast which which uh, gives too much character for for, for sparkling base. Um, DV10 is is uh, is great for that. You need to be a bit careful if if, if it's going through. If your wine's going to go through malolactic fermentation, you, you can't really use it because it, you you probably come out of fermentation with with quite a relatively high level of free sulfur dioxide in, in your wine. Um, so malolactic is going to, going to be inhibited. Um, but that aside, it, it's 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 good yeast. Now, in terms of yeast and temperature, I know like, so Sauvignon's quite. Um, receptive to like lower temperature ferment, especially to get the thiol expressions out. Uh, with what temperatures do you um, do you go down to? How long do you hold them there for? If you've got to get them through quickly, I'm guessing it can't be that cold. But how do how do you use temperature to control your sort of flavour and texture? No, 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 absolutely no. We 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 go cold. Um, you know, it's it's funny how I mean, the thing with fermentations is that is that once they start, you're, you're sort of the reality is that you're hanging on by by your by your coattails to some extent. I mean, fermentations are it, it's great fun, but they you I, I you know the honest truth is I think winemakers actually ex- exercise less control o- over ferments than than they think they do, and um, they're just they can be really really strong. And so we've had we've had wild ferments kick off at, at five degrees. Um, sorry, yeah. Was it five or six degrees? We had we had a tank of wine just start to start to ferment. I, I had a cold soap, which got must chilled, and, and that was down to at least five degrees, and started to ferment straight away, um, very unexpectedly. Uh, so, so for Sauvignon, I mean, we, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll be inoculating at, at around about fifteen degrees centigrade, okay? Because you want to get you want to inoculate at, you know, relatively moderate temperature um, for, for yeast, uh, for yeast um, population to grow. And then you take, you know, once you see that growth starting, once you see that temperature starting to creep up, you then turn the cooling on and you then bring it, bring it down. And, and you know, I, I, I was down at about 10 degrees um, this year, 10, 10 to 11 degrees on, on some of the big tanks. Um, and they, they've still got their main part of the fermentation completing at that temperature. And then, as as you get down into, into kind of low sugar levels, um, where where you, you can see the fermentation starting to, to to drop its its consumption of sugar, you then start to slowly increase that 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 temperature, let the fermentation temperature rise, um, so that you know the yeast have all the help they need to to finish off the fermentation. But yeah, I mean, ten ten to twelve degrees is is, is pretty standard for um, 
for Sauvignon here. Uh, you went a little bit higher for um, for rosé, but but not too much higher, about fifteen to sixteen degrees. Um, and then reds. I mean, you, you know, I, I red, reds can go hot very easily. Um, so I'm tending to keep temperatures turned down to about twenty to twenty five degrees. But the truth is, you know, in, in the in those tanks, I mean, very often that your 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 cap in the tank of wine can be up at you know 30, 30 degrees at least. Um, the bottom of the wine uh, will be at at, at twenty or, or, or twenty five. So you've got much more temperature gradation um, graduation in, um, in in a tank of red. Um, but yeah, that's that's roughly how the temperature works, I guess, during during fermentation. It also depends if you're doing malolactic co-inoculation as well. So you need to be pretty understanding of malolactic, malolactic co-inoculation and, and fermentation temperatures there because malolactic is very sensitive to temperature. And uh, if you go under 18 degrees, you'll, 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 you'll have a problem. So, What do you normally inoculate with for mallow? Do you, have, do you go with inococcus or, or, or do you get... Um... Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have done um, uh, sequential malolactic um, as as well as um, co-inoculation. And co- co-inoculation has, for, for the work that I do, has so many advantages. Um, it's hard to see past any disadvantages at this stage. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it's onococcus, and we and I use um, a, another Lalamond product um, uh, called Lalamond Alpha MBR, and um, it's it's a, a very easy um, product to, to to add to the tank. Um, you don't need to uh, do a lot of mixing or, or preparation before. You can actually just during a pump over, for example, on a red, you can just literally sprinkle it in. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it works from the start. I mean, you add it in 24 hours after, after your wine starts to ferment. And then, um, you know, hopefully at the end of fermentation, you've come out and you're 80 to 90% malolactic complete. And, and you're effectively using the heat of, of fermentation to, uh, to complete the, the large part of, of, of malolactic. And then you don't have the risk you know, of um, volatile acidity or, or, or some other associated risks with, 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 that you can get with malolactic um, in, in the months after fermentation. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly been a good method. Um, so, yeah, we use an onococcus and, and, and it's, it's a Lalamond product. If you, I mean, I'm not trying to be a, a cheerleader for Lalamond. I know they're supporters of the MW Institute, but they, they also have a very good uh, website with a lot of a lot of information about their products, which I've got to say I, I use all the time. Um, <laughs> inf- Information is really good for a winemaker, and um, having 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 their detail, um, yeah, it help it helps with your decision making. So I, I I do I do like their products. Yeah, <laughs> I, had, um, I had Phil Reedman on recently, and I asked him how, how he chose what products to use, and he told me he reads the back of the packet. So I was like, I think it's probably fair. It seems to be fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, we we you know we we get um, we get visited by by winery um, 
by by wine additive manufacturers the the whole time and they show us new new products and and and, and new research associated with those products and we always tried a few things out um uh and you know if you if you've got some good information from from those manufacturers it, it doesn't matter who i mean it, it it i'm always keen to to, to try things um as long as, as long as you can sort of see the, the the benefit from it for for the wines you're trying to make for the the clients you're working for um you know if you've it, it's uh yeah at times wine making products you know, can promise the earth and not necessarily deliver but that that's that's almost like like anything and of course with wine it's very very seasonal seasonal dependent and also even very ferment dependent so um you have you have to always keep that in mind when you're when you're trying new things. Now you're in New Zealand, which is the home of reductive winemaking. How do you manage the impact of oxygen during the winemaking process, and how do you make sure things don't get too sweaty socks? Kind of. Right. So, so, so is that what you mean by um, by, by reductive winemaking? In that you volatile sulfur compounds, or, or or do you mean just in terms of? Lack of oxygen during the winemaking. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean, in terms of lack of oxygen. Well, not just lack of oxygen, but how do you manage the oxygen intake to get the wine style that you want? Well, you, you certainly. I mean, the the there. Um, firstly, I mean, you're always limited by the the equipment you're you're working with. Um, you know, we we Villa Maria, uh, the flash new winery over on the other side of Hawkes Bay, have um, uh, these lovely presses where that you can you can use nitrogen to, to completely purge the system of, 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 of oxygen. You, you're pressing under, under nitrogen cover. Um, so you do have equipment now which is much more effective at, at, um, at purging oxygen out of the, out of the system that, that you're, you're using. All that said, I mean, I still think that, that when you receive fruit at a winery, particularly machine harvest fruit, um, there's a lot of oxygenation involved at receival, um, and, and then during the settling and, and the the uh, floating processes, um, you can't really avoid having quite a lot of exposure to oxygen at that time, and and that's that's not a bad thing. Um, I, th- I think there's a, there's a bit of a misunderstanding about you know wh- when is oxygen beneficial and when it's not, and certainly certainly prior to fermentation you juice can, can absorb and, and, and cope with quite a lot of oxygen which is actually also beneficial for the fermentation you know so so you do find a juice at the start of fermentation has probably got quite a lot quite high dissolved oxygen then and then at the end i mean you yeah i think um uh post fermentation i mean i mean you you're really managing oxygen through your choice of a vessel um techniques such as micro oxygenation uh your inert gas use um your management of vessels so things like bar- like lee stirring um and uh just things like you know in barrels like like bung checks and, and and things like that that that's those are still, you know, your 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 actual whole management of, of oxygen, um, and of course, I mean the the other thing which no one really wants to talk about, um, but is still 
very effective in terms of preventing some some oxidation problems is uh, making sure that you main if you've got wine in storage, making sure that you've got appropriate sulfur dioxide um, content. Uh, free sulfur dioxide throughout storage um, is uh, you know is pretty is pretty key. That does depend on, on, on what wine you've got. I mean, I, I've got some sparkling base at very low pH, and, and that wine is, is pretty much bulletproof. Um, it doesn't have any free sulfur content whatsoever and, and won't have any free sulfur content until next year. So it's going nearly a whole year with zero free sulfur. But that's because of its low pH um, because it's, it's extremely resistant to, uh, to oxygenation. Um, if you've got reds and you are continually topping those, those, those wines or continually che- you know, checking the bungs or, 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 or in, and they're in barrel and you, you, you're continually taking samples out or, or things like that, then that amount of oxygenation is, is going to um, potentially give you some, some, some problems long-term. Uh, you know, if you are storing in well well sealed stainless steel tanks that are full to the, into the turret, then you probably will, may have no no problems at all. Um, so, so I think you know, I think you know, vessel choice um, and just how you ha- how you're handling the wines probably had, has some of the most profound impact after fermentation than. Uh, than, than anything. Now, I want to talk about a little bit about pH. Partly so, I've heard some winemakers acidify after fermentation for storage and then deacidify for bottling because then it frees up a bit of sulfur and, and other things. I mean, is that, is that a practice you've seen? Or it sounds like a lot of faff. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, certainly, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly knocking the. I mean, I, I think I can see the, I can see the point. You know, I can see the point that the low low pH does have um, many advantages for for, for for storage. I mean, the the key one is that you can use a much lower rate of of uh, free sulfur dioxide because your molecular sulfur dioxide content will be much higher at uh, at low pH. So, yeah, you, you can store things with low sulfur content. And that's uh, that's that's you know that's that's a good thing, um, particularly now with, with with the sulfur limits that that exist. You do need to be very conscious of those um, when you when you're making making wine. You need to come in at the right levels of sulfur dioxide. So, but I, I think that I mean that does seem like a lot of like a lot of messing around. You could argue that that it's fine tuning the wine in a very structured way. I mean, during fermentation, like I say, I mean, sometimes you just sort of, in a way you're hanging on in the seat of your pants and, you, and you, you're flying blind to some extent because fermentations do do, I wouldn't say they do their own thing, but you're not really 100% in control. You're more like sort of 90% in control. So whilst, whilst we do acidification during fermentation, um, and we really try not to not to acidify uh, after fermentation. I guess you, you could argue too that adjusting your acidity after fermentation is much more is much more precise. It's much more accurate, and you've got the opportunity to to look at the wines 
um, when, the, when they're effectively finished and then really assess them from a sensory point of view and adjust, adjust the acidity accordingly. But every time you, you, you make a movement to a wine, you run the risk of degrading it just, just slightly. Um, you know, we, we do find that, that the, more, the more you move wine around the place, the less fruit-driven it, it eventually becomes. Um, so, yeah, it, it swings and roundabouts again. It does seem like quite a lot of faff. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure which winery that is. I'm not sure how much the cellar workers will be, will be thanking the winemaker for doing that, <laughs> if you should have been. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a key thing to, to, to winemaking is you really, you do have to think of the people involved. Um, you know, let labor is, is a really big part of making wine at a good price point. And if you're just throwing, if you're throwing people at, at winemaking because they have to do job X, then job Y, then job Z, um, well, that, that's, that's a lot of work. I mean, that, that's a lot of labor. And uh, you're not really making your wine very cost-effectively or very efficiently, I'd say. That, that's my own view, of course. But <laughs> you, you need to think of your cellar guys. That's altruistic of you. I like it. <laughs> um, so, in, in terms of in terms of pH, like, uh, how do you, uh, wh- how and when do you measure your pH? How important is it to look at it all the way through? And also, one of the, um, <laughs> I don't know how valid a criticism this is, but a few people say that, especially with entry level Sauvignon Blanc, you can taste the added tartaric, um, and I think that's just one of those myths that goes around. I'm not sure anyone can, or do you think that's just true? Or we, what, what do you think? No. Okay. So, so. Um... Are you talking about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc in, 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 in that regard or, um, yeah. or just Sauvignon Blanc in so, general? Yeah. No, no, a yeah. good friend of mine was, um, uh, every time he tastes um, so, uh, Kiwi Sauvignon, he's always like, oh, it's just tartaric acid and a bit of sugar. I was like, I'm not sure that's true, Ferg. But, um. Yeah, no, that's, 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 uh, that's not true. Um, so, okay, so, so how, how harvest generally works here in New Zealand um, is that we don't we don't have the desire or necessarily the luxury to harvest at at sugar levels which are completely um, that are going to give you thirteen percent alcohol. Okay, and you know, let's take thirteen percent alcohol as, as kind of a standard rate for, for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, twelve point five to thirteen percent. So you're really looking at, at, in New Zealand terms, 23 bricks. Now, 23 bricks for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is, is quite a high sugar level, okay? We would generally look to, to get Sauvignon Blanc into the winery, if we can, at round about 21 and a half to 22 bricks because we want the acidity. We, we want to keep the natural acidity. Um, it has a lot more benefits for us, um, and what I mean by that is, is, is it helps us harvest fruit a little bit earlier and avoid potential late season weather, which, which genuinely is a threat here. Um, we do not want fruit getting rained on. We, we really don't. Um, so that's, that's one reason why, why we harvest at a little bit lower sugar. Um, it, we also retain that natural acid. Now, on very basic commercial terms, tartaric acid is a lot more expensive. 
right, considerably more expensive than sugar. So I would rather add um, the equivalent of 1% alcohol in sugar and, and enrich the wine, chapelize the wine, than add tartaric acid, okay? It's much more cost-effective. Um, and and we, I, I haven't added any tartaric acid to Sauvignon Blanc this year. Not, not one drop. Um, so to say that, that you can taste the tartaric acid in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, um, I, 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 don't, I think that's a big stretch. Um, Marlborough, of course, is a cooler climate than Hawke's Bay. We'll tend to have a, a, a higher uh, titratable acidity and to some extent lower pH. Um, again, they'll be doing exactly the same thing as me because, because tartaric acid is expensive. So, you know, it, it's better to, it's better to, to harvest for, for, for acid um, than it is to, to harvest for sugar, yeah? As long as, as long as your flavors are there, as long as your flavor and fruit quality is there, that's, that's effectively the, uh, probably the more practical way to harvest. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, we, we obviously some, some varieties here do need a bit of help with tartaric acid. I mean, um, Merlot can, can be, you know, a, a little bit soft on, on, on acidity. Um, Chardonnay can be a little bit soft on acidity. Pinot Noir. Uh, Pinot Noir is, is, not, is not necessarily the high acid variety of, of note. Um, so sometimes you, 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 you do have to add, but yeah, we, we, we always try and do that during fermentation. And then if it, if it really, really needs a touch up after that, then, then, then we'll add a bit, but, but your, um, uh, the, the idea of sort of acidifying after harvest and then, and then deacidifying, gee, that, that, that does sound like, like, like quite a risk. Now, with this, a bit of a trend towards lower alcohol wines, especially things like the Doctor's Sauvignon, which is just picking up um, popular here, do you think you'll stop chapterizing, or do you need to do it to get that flavour balance? Or is it, does it, is it client-directed that they want 13% wine? Okay, so, so I guess the question would be, is, is Doctor's Sauvignon Blanc, is that going to become the dominant style of Sauvignon Blanc for mass market consumers? Is, is low alcohol or, or alcohols at that level, is that going to become the dominant style? Because if it is, then, then sure, we, we could, we could you know, reduce or, or preclude the use of sugar. But I'd argue that that, that is a style of Sauvignon Blanc at the moment, but it is not the predominant style, right? So I, 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 I can't see that, that, we, um, that, that we won't... Um, I, I can't see that we're going to stop using some enrichment anytime soon. You know, it's, this is a cool climate country. I mean, we don't, you know, this is not California or, or, or uh, South Australia where you naturally get 25 or 26 bricks at a harvest. Um, you know, it's a long growing season where, you, where you're hanging on to get all the sugar you can. Um, but you, you, you know, unfortunately it, it does mean that, that we, uh, you know, to, to make the wine um, acceptable for a mass price point, um, 
you know, there's an, there's a, I think a consumer expectation to some extent that that wine should be about twelve or twelve and a half percent, and that's that's what we're aiming for. Now, in a cool climate place, how do you manage tannin profiles, and how do you avoid greenness in your wines? And also, what do you do in terms of textural profile? I mean, is that, is that a design consideration for you know entry level Sauvignon? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it it can be. Um, I think uh, I think you know the, the 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 main considerations that you know are sort of great aromas, um, great concentrated fruit flavors, um, and and certainly texture. What you don't want from from any textural influence in Sauvignon Blanc is any bitterness. You know, when you're looking at at, at, at phenolic compounds. They can add, but they they can lend bitterness to a wine, and that's obviously what you're, you're trying to avoid in in, in 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 a wine like Sauvignon Blanc. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think Sauvignon does give a um, a, uh, uh, a textural um, a textural edge, and certainly, you know, we we you do get some added texture from machine harvest as well. Um, now, some of that because of the the, the processes that, that 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 you're using to uh, to float the wine, and then um, uh, to float the wine, and then to protein stabilize the wine, because of because of the the you know the use of bentonite, which are, are the two most effective me- the measures for for both. You are taking out some phenolics by by default. Okay, so the the, the tannin profile can. Yeah, or rather, the, the phenolic profile of Sauvignon Blanc it isn't really a consideration at, at the end of, of of the winemaking journey. Um, but you know, yeah, we 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 will look at uh, do we can look at a, a bit of fining on that. Um, I've certainly fined a wine this year because of vegan requirements. I find a wine this year using a tiny amount of PVPP, um, which is in in its place is a very effective fining agent to moderate some, some bitterness in wine. Um, but, it, it, you know, PVPP can also be super aggressive and, and you've got to be very careful using that. Plus, there's also market limits depending on, on, on market. So, you know, th- this wine I'm, I'm making is to go to, to Australia and uh, PVPP is, 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 is fine for that market. And I, think I, I ended up using, uh, I think, 0.05 grams per litre. Um, so it, it's, it's a very low rate. And, and, it, and it, it did work did work well just to kind of just tone down that bitterness and just tone down that kind of aspect of, of sort of slight harsh acidity. Um, so that, that's, that's the type of polishing that w- which, which you'll do. And that's, that's, that, that would also apply to, to rosés as well, you know, because rosé, we make a fair bit of Merlot rosé here. And, and Merlot, it's obviously great with relatively high phenolic content. Um, making rosé from it is, is, you know, can, can have its challenges. So what kind of things do you do to bring complexity to commercial wines? To complexity? Um, well... I think one of the one of the one of the the, the, the the main ways is we 
we, we, we're buying fruit from quite a range of vineyards. And just that range of vineyards alone is, is one way in which you immediately add complexity. I mean, they're all, they're all different. I mean, you, it's hard to sometimes, I guess, make people understand about how individual vineyards are. But fruit very often tastes entirely differently from, from one vineyard to the next or one sub-region to the next. But by mixing those together, you get, you know, definitely you, you, you'll get some complexity that way. Um, and and that, that's, that's part of the fun of, 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 of contracting and, and buying fruit as well, is working with those, those different vineyards in different, different regions. Um, you can certainly do it through your yeast management. Um, I mean, not only wild ferment, if you, if you are... Um, if you're using some wild ferment, and we, we do use some, some wild ferment, wild ferments will bring in some complexity, but it's not the only way. I mean, I think, I think people sort of tend to think that wild fermentation is the only method to bring in complexity in, in yeast, and, and it's not. Um, you can use different types of yeast, of course, uh, different temperatures. Um, if you propagate or not, and then how you propagate. I mean, I think one of the ways in which we added some complexity this year to the Sauvignon Blanc we made was um, we we didn't pasteurize the juice first. We actually made it effectively a, a propagation using turbid juice. So using a lot of the kind of the vineyard elements within that juice, whereas, whereas you'd usually knock those out through pasteurization because propagation, usually that, that's your method of doing it. This year, we, we actually took a bit of a high-risk method and um, used some really quite cloudy juice to, uh, for our propagation, which worked fine. Um, and I think it, that actually did give some, um, some, uh, some complexity. And one of the things I was going through, through some of the, the Sauvignon ferments that, um, that I was doing using um, these propagations was I was getting some really nice kind of gunflinty characters um, so nice sort of struck match, um, uh, sort of um, gunflint, like like you'd think of old-fashioned Sancerre, um, but um, you know we're still with that sort of same thiol and um, tropical Sauvignon character, which which you get from New Zealand. Um, and I think I mean other ways of, of adding complexity, you know, uh, to, to the wine we the wine I make is blending is is. Is a key one. Um, that's obviously like a like a very big tool for any winemaker. Um, fining, I think, can work because what what fining will do is not just about taking something out. It's very often about making something appear. So you can just actually enhance some fruit concentration, or you can enhance the the uh, the palate impression of, of, of a certain aspect of wine. Um, I think, uh, you know, lee stirring, you know, in, in, in whites certainly will, will give added complexity through, through mouthfeel um, and, and also other flavours. Malolactic or, or part malolactic, um, that's not really linked to Sauvignon Blanc, but um, uh, some, of, some of the things like the Chardonnay sparkling base or... or um, um, Chardonnays or, or, or other whites. Um, I think too, as well. I mean, you know, one of the, the one of the key things to, to to keep complexity, not necessarily to 
increase it, but just to keep it, is just to be really careful with your with your handling of, of wine and, and and things like this, the speed of your your dispatch work. I mean, um, you talked about the the winery and 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 and, and winemakers who are acidifying after after fermentation and then deacidifying. You see, for me, that that means extra handling steps, and at each case, I think you lose a little bit of complexity. Okay, so so I would try. That's why I would try and avoid doing that. Um, but you know, I, th- I mean, I think complexity to some extent is also it is linked to varietal to a bit. I mean, we we try and do as little as possible to to, to Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, genuinely, it, it might not sound like it, but we genuinely try to machine harvest, press. Float, ferment, protein stabilized, cold stabilized. That's it. I mean, that, that that's that's all you do. Aside from that final filtration, um, other varieties. I mean, I think you've got to you know try and sort of work out a little bit more to 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 get complexity. Um, and yeah, I mean, reds reds in particular. You know, your 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 decisions around. Um, Cap management, uh, and then also, you know, how you're how you're handling them after fermentation. I think mean, those all those will all bring or decrease complexity depending on what you're doing. So I think that, I think those would be my my, my main points. Did, Bob, you asked about pH, and I never I never realized um, I never really answered the question. Do you want me to go back to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just conscious we're, I'm taking up loads of your time, but if you want, if you want to talk about pH, I'm all ears. No, I mean, I think, I think, like, well, just two things to say. I mean, which, um, yeah, because I, I, mean, I think I've spoken about about a fair bit. I mean, the the, the the key things for me with pH is that you know has a strong effect on on malolactic, um, and you know that 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 that's important. I mean, you. Malolactic is a, a, a pretty critical stage for, for some wines, and, and, and it, pH can low pH can inhibit malolactic. So I think you need to be you know very conscious as a winemaker of, of where you are with with, with pH for that. Um, for reds as well, I mean pH has a very strong effect on your anthocyanin composition. Okay, so again, you know knowing knowing what your pH is there gives you a clue as to how your your wines may uh, may appear how the color may appear um and then the, the the key one of course is that low ph for a large part is just free sulfur dioxide your your content of molecular sulfur dioxide within that free sulfur dioxide that that is 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 far greater at, at low pH, and um, you know for the sort of wines which, which I make, which are, which are fairly low cost wines at, at relatively high volumes, that that's a really big consideration. Um, low, low pH wines means I'm using far far less sulfur, and it's far more effective, and and that that's that's a great thing, and those wines are just much much more able to withstand. You know, slightly rougher handling as a result. So, uh, uh, yeah, there are a lot of benefits to, to to low pH. The problem, of course, is, is how your acid then then appears from a, from a palate sensation. Um, 
Uh, I mean, what about you? I mean, do you, do you are you a, are you an acid fan? Are you, are you preferring wines with more acid? Uh, yeah, yeah, these I've days? been in the wine trade for fifteen years, so yeah, I like I like searing rieslings and, <laughs> and everything else. But I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I like any any kind of wine. If yeah. it's depending on how it's made. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, the thing you know, the thing with 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 riesling, I mean, and, and German riesling is that I mean, I, I, when I worked in the Moselle. Um, yeah, the we we the great thing with wines of that, that period is your your microbiology or your your, your the, the the risks you have for microbiology are so much less because of low pH that really I mean um, it was a joy to work there. I mean we just used we effectively just used hot water to clean to clean the winery um, because you didn't really need to to, to use anything else to, to knock out the bugs that can build up. Um, it was great. I mean, there's there's a there's a ton of benefits to to, to low pH, um, but yeah, those but the but the the acids, <laughs> depend, depending on how they're tasting, that's that's quite often your your, your problem with low pH wines. I think. Fair enough. Well, listen, I'm I'm taking up loads of your time. So, um, just a, as a final note, I always like to end kind of optimistically. What do you think are the real causes for optimism in the world of wine today? Oh. Oh, I think there's so much to discover in, in the world of wine. I mean, I mean, just in the last five years, the the the, the way the wine world has has moved and changed. Um, uh, I mean, for winemakers, I mean, you've got just a ton of different options now, and, and a ton of different requirements um, and expectations to meet. Um, I think consumers are getting better and better wines each year. Um, I. I there's, there's, you know, uncovered regions yet yet to be found, or uncovered vineyards yet yet to be found. Um, uh, that that's what that's where I'd be optimistic. I mean, the, you know, the new wine styles, new techniques, new, you know, just uh, uh, from a geeky perspective, um, messing around with new vessels, um, just getting better at everything. You know, I mean, I think. One one of the things which I'm, I'm secretly hoping, in in a way, is uh, um, that with with uh, how we found amphora and, and concrete tanks and, and these type of vessels, I'm not saying that I necessarily like them all, but but moving away from barrels, I think it's got to be, got to have many many positive outcomes for for, for the wine industry, um, and. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a ton of things to be to be to be optimistic about just on on on, on aspects like that alone. So uh, yeah, so it's a bright new future for for most winemakers, I'd say. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for well going well over time and and for telling us everything. That was that was wonderful. No problems. No, not not at all, Bob. A pleasure to do it. Thank you so much. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Bob.